Well, here we are, season two, episode eight of The Mixtape with Scott. I am your host, Scott Cunningham. And before I introduce our guest today, I'd like to, of course, begin with these now very familiar words by Sue Johnson from her book, Hold Me Tight, Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love, because it describes perfectly my worldview and the ethos that I try to saturate this podcast about. We use stories to make sense of our lives, and we use stories as models to guide us in the future. We shape stories. They shape us back. My podcast is about personal stories. It's usually the personal stories of economists, though every now and then I'm going to throw you a curveball with a non-economist, too, if it's somebody that I'm really, 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 really wanting to talk to. I agree, though, with Dr. Sue Johnson that by listening to people's specific stories, it can help you understand and navigate your own life. So as you listen to my guest stories with an open mind and open heart, I hope that you hear your own life story. But even if you don't, I hope that you nonetheless feel a little bit less alone, a little bit more connected to other people, a little more hopeful that all these windy paths that you've been on that sometimes feel like they're going nowhere are in fact going to exactly the place they were always supposed to go. So with that said, let me give a warm introduction to a professor at Harvard Business School, Dr. Mike Luca. Though Mike is an academic, you could say that he's part of the larger series that I've been telling. I haven't really been done a lot of them this semester, but or this season, but I did a bunch last season. It's larger season I've been doing about economists in tech, given his long-running interest in uh, the tech industry and the intimacy with which he has engaged it uh, over his career. So thank you again for coming back to my podcast. I hope that you get something out of it today. I am your host, uh, Professor Scott Cunningham. Uh, almost. Thank you. Okay. Well, this is a great pleasure to have with me on the call, someone who uh, I've sort of followed from a distance, but this is our first time to ever meet Mike Luca at, at, uh, at, from Harvard Business School. Mike, thanks so much for being on the, the mixtape podcast this week thanks for having me well i said your name but could you say for the for the sake of the listener your name uh you know what your title is and uh what what your specific like you know employer and department and all that kind of stuff is yeah i'm mike luca i'm a faculty member at harvard business school where i teach a course called data-driven leadership and i work on economics of the tech sector cool cool Great. How long have you been there, by the way? So I've been there since 2011. 2011. Okay, cool. All right. So before we get started about your career, um, where did you grow up anyway? So I grew up in New York State, about halfway between New York City and Albany. Oh, okay. So New York's a big place, but kind of like the Hudson Valley area. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Is that like a rural? It was kind of rural when you get up there. You said it was north? I, I north? Um, actually, it's an interesting area because it's been evolving over the last uh, few years. Like as kind of New York has gotten a little bit more sprawly, people moving out to the suburbs. Yeah. Um, there's, for example, a farm that when I grew up was kind of more of a working farm and now kind of brings in a lot of people from New York who want to see what a farm looks like. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Do you ever see, do you get back there very much? I do. So my uh, parents are still there. My sister is still there. So I, I go back a few times a year. Okay. But what did your parents do for a living when you were, when you were a kid? Uh, they were both elementary school teachers. My dad taught special education. My mom was, uh, she taught in library and then second grade. Oh, okay. And you've got, how many siblings did you say you have? Uh, two siblings. Two. Okay. And um, so what kind of vacations did y'all do as a kid? Good question. Um, lots of driving vacations. So you take kind of a, <laughs> a summer drive, at least for a few years when I was uh, quite young, to go visit my grandparents who had moved to Florida. So kind of the New York to Florida. Oh wow, that's a long one. Back uh, a lot. <laughs> it's a long one. Yeah, three little kids in the back. Three little kids. You're like, go to the bathroom. You're like, I don't have to go. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> nobody, nobody would ever go uh that's awesome so you're so so you would you would do a lot of beach vacations but a lot but it was the drive yeah yeah so the drive is the most <laughs> looking back on it the drive is kind of the most salient part i didn't see my grandparents over there it was the excitement for me as a little kid and then um, get back but yeah uh well so what, what were your interests as a kid 
when you were like little? And so when I was a kid, I guess they were buried. So when I was really young in elementary school, like I was interested in all sorts of things, like um, I guess usual kind of uh, suburban hanging out type of stuff. But uh, I played soccer, not well, but <laughs> I played and enjoyed it. Um, at school, I was interested. Uh, I was interested in learning about kind of bits and pieces of history or uh, kind of social studies. Uh, I don't know that I was a superbly academic kid, um, but I liked reading. And then when I got a little bit older, um, I was into books like uh, The Hobbit. Um, mm. Then I got into some Stephen King and other types of. So I like kind of fiction books, but uh, more on like the personal front than on the academic front. Uh, yeah. So you were like, yeah, the the Stephen King and the. So you were just you liked the, the kind of the fa fantasy fiction and mystery fiction kind of stuff. I did. I, yeah, I definitely went through periods for that. Then in high school, kind of usual. So this was. I went to high school in the mid late 1990s, right? So you could imagine the type of music that yeah. two sort of dominant. Right. And I like both of them. But yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what did you want to be as a kid? So I, I'm not sure that I have like a. I'm not sure I had a super structured idea of what I wanted to be professionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I didn't actually know. I didn't think about things like, oh, where do I want to where do I want to go to college or what do I want to do for a living? Like I knew I wanted to do something where I felt like I could help people. Like that was always something that was kind of top of mind for me. Uh, then even when I went to college, so um, I went to SUNY schools. So I bounced a little bit and ended up, I graduated from SUNY Albany. Uh, mm -hmm. So it's a state school. So I was state school about 90 minutes from where I had grown up. And wow. there, actually, I didn't know that I wanted to study economics. I had been studying, uh, so I, I decided that I wanted to be a math major. Mm -hmm. And there, I had become interested in math. And I was also interested in business. So actually, the, I remember kind of just doing some of my own searches, trying to figure out what are the types of jobs somebody could do if they if they learn some math yeah. and uh, if they want to also engage with the business world. And I actually found actuary uh, mm. as a job that kind of got higher on my list. So when I was in college, I, you know, interning as an actuarial analyst with Cigna, which is a large insurance company, and uh, was thinking about applications of you know, statistics. And I guess now what, what you might think about is data science types of ideas, right? Uh, but applied to insurance products. So I, after that summer, I got interested in the career. Both for me, it seemed like a job that was, um, I sort of liked the toolkit. I like kind of this intersection of doing uh, stats related, uh, stats related work, but in a yeah. businessy type of context. Yeah. So that worked well for me. Um, I was interested in these applications in business. So I wanted mm -hmm. to give it a try. I also was interested just in a job where you could work directly out of college. So just kind of financially that worked well. For the situation I was in at the time. So I uh, decided to give that a try. And while I was taking my math courses, I took a couple of economics courses at SUNY Albany and really liked them mm. and decided to take some more. And then uh, ended up just chatting with a couple of professors there and uh, developing some connections with them around like the field and different questions that economics was being used to answer and was intrigued by that. So I ended up being a double major in math and economics, yeah, but then still went and worked as an actuary after mm -hmm. undergrad. And what was it? Do you remember what it was, the, the first impressions of economics that you had that, that made you like it? What were the ideas or what was the stuff? And how did it make you feel when you... Well, yeah, it's like... It's great, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question like there were a few things that I really liked about it I liked some of the clarity it brought to ideas that I was having so I remember in a microeconomics course that wasn't using calculus but that was showing things like marginal revenue and you could sort of see what the connection was and then in an offline uh, discussion with the professor for the class I had sort of draw, drawn out some of those connections and I just thought it was neat that you could sort of formally model some yeah. of the ideas that were intuitively appealing and then Think about how you could start to make sense of uh, of 
things that you see in the world. I also became interested in, I guess, like then it would have been when, like, I guess, uh, applied micro theory type ideas had uh, had got me interested uh, thinking about the problems that could occur that might stop somebody from spending efficiently, right? Or investing as much as uh, they might want to in education, right? So what all these barriers were. Now, so th those are all super exciting ideas for me. And I like the idea. I guess it was some of the same things that got me interested in going into business with stats type stuff. I felt like economics was similarly at this intersection of thinking about data, thinking about models, but then also thinking about problems in the real world. So yeah. both kind of actuarial work and economics felt like venues where you could do that. Right, 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 right. So, so you, but then you didn't want to be an economist. You were, you were still pursuing this actuarial degree call um, career. Did something change at some point? You know, so it's funny. I had a professor who had suggested going to grad school. Now, part of this was just, I didn't know what grad school was. I didn't know kind of what that might look like. So I didn't have a whole lot of information uh, about that. And also just you know, pragmatically as an undergrad, the idea of going to school for five more years without kind of a salary uh, to, or without kind of like a, a full salary yeah. uh, to support myself felt very daunting. Right. So I remember telling you, the professor, can you give me a little bit more insight into what, what grad school looks like? What kinds of things you do? Do you mainly teach? Do you mainly do research? Like what, what does that life look like? Yeah. And that was maybe my senior year in college where we kind of had that discussion. And then I actually kind of put it aside and I went back to Signa where I'd interned and enjoyed it, like the people I was working with, like the uh, general projects I was working on, like the idea of using these tools uh, and applying them to a real world problem. And then at some point, it just kind of something in the back of my mind. And I guess it was really around what the specific problems you're working on. And I liked the, I liked the tools. I liked the applied nature of it, but had questions that I was like, well, I would love to go on this tangent or I'd love to go work on this thing. And it wasn't kind of in the, it didn't really work in the setting of my day-to-day -day job. Plus a lot of questions ended up being outside of the stuff that I was working on. So I, I called up the professor uh, and, I remember kind of chatting with him, you know, like, can we talk a little bit more about what it would look like to apply to graduate school? Like, what do I need? And then I learned you need these recommendations. You need to write a statement. You need to pick a set of schools to apply to. Yeah. And, and then you have to take the GRE, kind of getting all that in order. And yeah. in parallel, I had taken a couple of the actuarial exams, some of which covered economics, which got me re-excited about right. uh, economics as a discipline. Right. And, I decided to give it a shot. So yeah. I uh, actually, I, so I actually switched jobs at the time because I thought, you know, maybe another job where I could find a problem that's more targeted to what I'm interested in, that yeah. would kind of fulfill the intellectual need, like the desire that I want to work on slightly different problems. So I uh, switched to a different actuarial job, um, which is also fun. And I also like the people I worked with. Then uh, then I started to put together applications for grad school. So I applied, and the way I was thinking about it is I actually uh, remember putting together, uh, kind of trying to put together a spreadsheet of what happens after grad school. Like, what's the, uh, what are the different paths that, that people could uh, go down after uh, getting a PhD in economics? And I wanted to try to debias myself, right? So I just mm. sort of took kind of probabilities of different outcomes based on whatever I could piece together from the schools that I was looking at. And the thing that hit me is I realized that it's not something where you could just sort of like stack all the, like, if this happens, I'll be happy. If this happens, I won't. What I realized is that even if I did all the things that I would want to do within the insurance industry, which I think is interesting, and I sell a lot of friends who work in, it just wasn't the thing that I kind of wanted to do for myself. Right. And that it wasn't really about kind of integrating over probabilities. It was about kind of going down a path of things that just personally was more exciting uh, for me. So yeah. I, I decided to give it a go and figure, you know, in a year. Now I got to BU and at the time there, there were, there was high first year attrition. 
I think that's changed there. That's probably changed at a lot of places now. And I felt, you know, if I I'll know one way or the other after the first year, whether it doesn't work out for one of many reasons, and then I could reassess and figure it out. So I went to BU thinking that uh, I would study some combination of, it, it was always kind of in the microeconomics realm, but I thought like health economics was an area that had been on my mind because I worked in insurance as an actuary is just a topic that I right. cared about. And uh, instead, after taking my first year of courses, I uh, started getting more interested in just the like economics of information, I guess, you know, like applied micro theory um, and empirical uh, work on that. So that was kind of the path to uh, BU and how I got interested in going into economics. Mm. Who, who, what was the professors that were making a big impression on you at Boston? Yeah, so um, I'll say, so So I'll start with the SUNY Avenue person who I had met. So Michael Jarrison, I remember being a person who had uh, really uh, got me thinking about a lot of this stuff. Um, there's a, uh, several other professors, some of whom are still there now, uh, who, who got me thinking about the topic broadly. Now at BU, uh, my there were a lot of professors that influenced. I found it to be a supportive environment. I like the so the cohort of other students to brainstorm with, but also just this idea of working with faculty. Um, so Albert Ma, who's a applied theorist, is a person who I started meeting with fairly regularly mm. uh, early in the program. Yeah. So uh, you so so it was applied theory. So when you were interested in information. It was you were sort of sorting into more of a more of an applied theorist kind of role. You know, so it's interesting. I didn't really have a I didn't even see myself as having a role that I was going into. And for me, the first couple of years were just about exploration and trying to figure out what is the thing that uh, I that I'd like to be working on for the decades to come. And I also was realistic that I didn't quite feel like I had enough information to know what I would like. So it was a lot of kind of experimentation in different courses um, and just learning and soaking in what I could from different faculty members. Yeah. Uh, Bill Mukherjee was another person who I met with a lot early on. Bartlett and you know, so kind of people all kind of, I guess, in this uh, uh, micro uh, world. Uh, and that was kind of in the year one or years one and two. And I was looking at issues like, uh, yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about Issues like what information should be provided in what situation. And then and some of the courses I would get interested in, um, some of it was what are the limitations of rationality? So kind of what are some of the behavioral assumptions that might make some models more realistic? So that was kind of the space of things that I had initially been in, intrigued by. Yeah, yeah. So, so what do you write your dissertation on? So I started... Uh, so then I went down a couple of different paths, right? So trying a couple. So as a second year student, I I thought about the idea of kind of di like dynamic adverse selection in health markets. So that was kind of a very broad topic to doing work on. And then sort of backed out of that a little bit um, and started thinking about other questions. And partly, part, uh, so where my friends in the program, we had this idea to look at college rankings mm. and build on some of the work that was already out there, but looking at some shocks to US news over time and seeing what is it that makes a ranking uh, more or less influential in a situation and what is the causal effect of rankings. And part of it that we were interested in is all the information's right there. So what exactly is it that our ranking is doing? Right, right. So, oh, I lost you. Oh, shoot, it's happening. Um, college ranking. I lost you for a second there. Um, sure. Let's see. I don't know what just happened. Um, okay. Let's back up to you were telling me. Okay. So you were telling me about the college rankings. Yeah. So 
we were looking at the impact of college rankings and we looked at things like, um, you know, if you, if you instrument for the ranking using changes in the weights that are given to different categories, can you, you got that data? The, you managed to get that data. Is that data easy to get? It's actually not that hard. So at the, we did make a trip to library, which uh, seems like an uncommon way to get data uh -huh. <laughs> now, at least kind of looking at uh, many of the settings that I look at. Uh, we collected some of it, and then uh, we complemented it with data. Actually, David Pope had collected some. So some combination of our own collection and other economists who had done some work on the area that shared data with us. And, and we ran, um, so we tried to look at what's the impact of rankings. Um, and there, you might still say, well, there's some learning going on. Maybe people are inferring from the weights because U.S. News has done uh, research on what the weight should be, and maybe that evolves over time. So then the final thing we did is actually looked at a change in which uh, U.S. News had expanded the rankings, so from the top 25 to the top uh, 50, um, and they had already been listing the top 50 with not all the underlying information, but you know, like the, the main things that they're looking at. So we were interested in when you switch it from one to 25, but the next 25 listed alphabetically, what happens to demand at schools 26 through 50 when they go into the rank order? Oh, so um, it used to be they were alphabetizing 26 to 50, and then they, they switched, and then they brought them into the ranking? Yeah, and the oh. weights were there, and kind of the main category information was there. So you can't kind of perfectly do this, but you can get kind of enough insight yeah. into into how you construct it. So we were thinking at the time. I remember, you know, if you if you really wanted to, uh, if you really thought that it was the weights that had all the information, then somebody who's trying to apply would kind of go through and just do like do the math and figure out what yeah. this tool is. But we still. We saw that kind of switching it to the rank order with them applying the weights and uh, providing the ranking had an impact on the uh, um, basically the demand for schools 26 through 50 after that got oh, introduced through the one through so 25. interesting. Wow. Wow. Is it in and it's U.S. News and World Report. It's not like it's not like there's a bunch of these and they're all having the same impact. It's really that magazine, right? You know, for at least at the time. Now, the landscape's changed, right? So actually, U.S. News and World Report, they sort of made a big splash by creating rankings, right? So mm -hmm. I think 1983 or something like that was the first year they had explored with rankings. And then sort of over time, I've tried to create a methodology around mm -hmm. it. And now there's other rankings. And also uh, with, and this is part of the economics of digitization, right? So now that everything's online, it's a little bit easier for students to sort of shift like how much do I care about this or how much do I care about that right right so this is the key so this is how you get into all this stuff with like reviews and stars and all these things you were always kind of and then even that being about information you were always kind of interested in this yeah so I was always interested oh. in that I was interested in information and just kind of the what information we use to make decisions and kind of what's forming our decision processes. Right, and then, right. Uh, on, on that project, then I started thinking, well, if this is really interesting. So I was excited about that project, but then thinking, you know, that there, yeah, there are these other types of information out like that. There are these other types of information out there. So um, we had looked a little bit at book reviews and what determines uh, book reviews and then started thinking about online platforms and then the two platforms that I've um, done work uh, to that I've done the most work on over the years are Workly to Yelp and to Airbnb um, and in both of those it's kind of thinking about the reputation systems and uh, information that's now available and interested in it both from, uh, you know, I mean, how, how should we think about people using this information, yeah. but also from a design perspective, right? So right. kind of what are the things that you can do to make this both more or less uh, useful for people, but also uh, thinking about, especially in the, in the context of Airbnb, one thing that caught our attention was how do you make sure you're developing a market that's not only efficient, but also inclusive. Mm. So you had that like theory background. So like moving into this market design, you know, like you could have just been one of these causal inference people, you know, finding 
you know, rounding of stars and kind of just like doing more reduced form stuff. But you had this like kind of broader, you had this background in theory. I bet that did that did that make this transition thinking about Airbnb and 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 these online basically online uh, marketplaces sort of become even bigger like than just the information. Yeah, so it's a it's a great question. So there are, I would say there are a couple of different pieces that made it that for me helped to put now for everybody kind of it clicks together in different ways. But for me, there are a couple of pieces that helped to guide the way that I thought about issues. Right, and one is on um, kind of the applied, like the kind of the applied thinking about the applied theory behind some of these issues, and um, you know. Like especially kind of so quick in the U.S. news one, thinking about what, like what, what's the new information here? Like, what is it then that there's just costly information processing? Like, and what are some of the predictions of that in the way that you design um, information? And I guess for me, theory and behavioral economics got me thinking. Well, actually, decisions that you may think are not that important if you thought everybody was a perfect information processor and everybody was perfectly unbiased, might, might be pretty important in practice. Then the other part that I would say did shape me um, is like, I, I think from my, even from my work as an actuary, I was always interested in how these things kind of manifest in the field. And I think I had worked a couple of years before going back to grad school. So um, I, I was, interested in applications more broadly and yeah. applications and uh, what's a manager going to do with this information. Even when I was a grad student, um, I, I did some grad side projects where I continued working at an insurance company helping to work on live projects they had. So it was yeah. always kind of an itch that I had to say, kind of, here's the question, here's the theory, here's kind of what data you might be able to look at and the types of questions you might be able to answer. Yeah, yeah. So you graduate from Boston and you go to Harvard Business School. It's not Kennedy, yeah. it's business school. Uh, yeah, the business school. The business school. That must have been so that you must have that must have been just uh amazing to get, you know, an offer from Harvard as an as a as a job market candidate. I mean, did did you have a sense when you were on the market that that, that kind of thing might end up happening, or was that sort of like uh, a real big surprise? Yeah, so it's so hard to predict anything on, yeah. on the market. Um, you know, it, it, when I the spreadsheet I was talking about, kind of at the beginning, it was not on my spreadsheet. It is a zero weight kind of event, <laughs> so it's not something that I had thought a lot about. Um, as a job market candidate, I would say that more of what was on my mind is uh, like I didn't really have a field in, in a way. And so I was interested in information. I was interested in theory. I was interested in applied, um, uh, like in uh, applied econometric kind of causal inference type questions. Yeah. And um, at, at the time, it wasn't clear to me, like, do I apply for a labor position? Do I apply for an IO? Is it like, even what's the field that centers around this? And right. I think it's in kind of my committee too, like Daniela Kasserman, right? So kind of a uh, more of a behavioral and labor economist story. So I think the the I've been working with people across different fields. And actually that's that was just super exciting. I love working with people from different fields. I like the idea of thinking about how does a theorist view this problem? How does a labor economist view this problem? How does somebody in a strategy department view this problem? And and on the market, I just sort of applied to all the jobs that seem like they could be interesting in different ways. Yeah. And both kind of thought about it as I'm applying for a job, but also it's a little bit of matchmaking. And, and actually, like I remember thinking, it was like I'm interested in applying to some behavioral econ type places, but I wasn't really a behavioral uh, person either, at least kind of in any traditional sense of the term. Yeah. So I applied and figured, you know, I could just sort through the market and figure out what feels like a match. So yeah. what did that look like in practice? I I, uh, I interviewed for like a wide kind of type of different uh, jobs. So some in econ department, some in business schools, mm. uh, some in practice, some in policy. Mm. And, uh, uh, and at the end of that process, when I, I like when I uh, got the offer from HBS, I guess one of the things that I was thinking about is some of the things that had excited me kind of along the way 
are ones that, um, I think economics departments too, uh, but I think kind of the cross-disciplinary parts of it and the connection to practice were things yeah. that are that kind of, um, they were rewarded in business or at least kind of the way that it looked to me is that some of the things that I was excited about were that direct interest um, in business schools in a way where um, it was just slightly left, the focus is slightly different across different places. So for me, it was trying to figure out what's a place that feels like they're interested in the things that I'm interested in doing. The other thing that I learned on the market um, is that there was at the time was a, a new, uh, this economics of digitization yeah. field, like that, you know, it's sort of a subfield of people thinking about the tech sector and the design of platforms and all these yeah. things that I, at the time, didn't know like I didn't know it existed and it was kind of a newly formed uh, set of initiatives and over time that's grown and it's been a community uh, for at least that part of the work. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So what year is that? So you graduate your first year at Harvard is what year? Uh, 2011. 2011. Yeah. And that, and you start watching as, and so my understanding is like probably around then is when you start seeing this growth in uh, in the tech industry starting to hire more and more economists. Is that is that your impression also? Yeah. So at the time there were some groups, right? So uh, Cal Varian had been right. uh, doing his work. So Susan had done some work at Microsoft. Uh, Steve had just started this group at eBay. So there were kind of a few of the early groups that had started, and like I, I was aware of it, but it was still very early in that. Uh, yeah. So a couple of things uh, in in the classroom and in my teaching, I started thinking about some of these issues that got me thinking about uh, some new topics. So for example, my first year at HBS, I started writing a case study, right, which is kind of a very business school specific kind of uh, thing to work on. But I remember writing a case study with my colleague, Ben Edelman, Right. Uh, and we had looked at, we were thinking about the design of uh, Airbnb's reputation system. And I remember at the time, it's, yeah, so economists were new in that sector, but lots of the platforms were new as well. And at the time, we were thinking about how does a company like Airbnb build trust among guests and hosts and develop that from a reputation system? So we wrote a case centered around that. And through that case, we started thinking about what are some of the things that could go wrong, actually, because the big thing they did that was different from lots of other parts of the tech sector is that they gave more information about guests and hosts and made it very easy to reject people in a way that is actually pretty hard. If you look at, at the Expedia's of the world, um, you kind of enter your credit card, you find a date that something's available, and you make the booking um, on Airbnb. They sort of had these lines at the time that were like, well, if you don't like the way, like, you know, take a look at the guests, they're going to request the place. And if there's anything you don't like about them, you could just reject them. And there are high rejection rates on the platform. And that's what got us thinking about, well, one thing that this risk doing is increasing discrimination on the platform in a way where it's actually unrolling some of the gains that you might've seen in other parts of the tech uh, sector, right? So even the rise of online marketplace like Expedia um, may have helped to mitigate it at the time. And now this is saying, here's a slightly different design choice uh, that might bring some of this back. And that's what sort of led us down this road to look at discrimination um, on, on the platform that mm. kind of turned into a pair of academic papers that we wrote on the topic. Uh, and at, at the end of that, by, by that time, between the time I started and the time we had these two papers, there had been growth at a bunch of companies, including a couple of economists had started, had gone into Airbnb by then, and the economists had gone to uh, Uber uh, and a series of other companies. Yeah, yeah. So you were studying discrimination on the platforms, but you weren't working within the companies. You were like, how were you getting that data? Yeah, so that was an, that was an interesting project, right? So we kind of did our own data collection effort, which was pretty common at the time. Um, and then what we did is we eventually kind of launched this audit study um, where we just sent out applications to get oh. pre-approval um, and 
uh, looked at the likelihood of being accepted or rejected at different properties. So we sent out 6,000 and something uh, requests to yeah. get at the acceptance rate for guests with uh, means that were statistically more likely. Oh, you did the you did the black sounding names because yeah, you don't so, have to show your photograph on these things, right? You can just do, you can do your name. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. So, what do you find? So we found that uh, that guests with distinctively African American names are about sixteen percent less likely to be accepted uh, relative to guests with distinctively white names. Sixteen percentage points. 16%. So it's about eight percentage points. So think about kind of like a base acceptance rate of about eight, uh, 50%. Huh. 16% less likely to get a callback, less likely to have them yeah, approve. So what's, the process, what's the process that goes through with Airbnb? So at the time, the process was that you would uh, submit. So you would kind of say, is the place still available or not? And then the host had a couple of options. They could pre-approve you, in which case you could just kind of proceed they can tell you it's not available or yeah. they can try to ask you for more information. Uh, so what do they do? What are all the ways that you saw them responding differently to African American? It's pretty interesting because it actually, we thought that there was going to be more information seeking, but actually it was just more people rejecting and fewer people pre-approving. Mm -hmm. Well, what about, could you do the study and like have African American sounding names where they have uh, like, they're not new accounts. They're like, they've got, you know, 50 stars or, you know, they've like been to 50 places before. Is it, has anybody done a study amongst experience? Is, is it sustained discrimination? Yeah, so that's a great question. So actually people have now done versions of the study where they've layered on reviews and find that having reviews helps to mitigate uh, bias on the platform. Yeah, oh, it does. Yeah. Huh. That's so, interesting. Wait, so does a does a Beckerian theory of discrimination does information about the person overcome that? It's almost like a statistical discrimination, isn't it? Like, is it statistical? So this is it's funny um, that you asked. So we actually had had a discussion in the paper at some point on statistical versus taste-based discrimination. And in the revision process, um, it ended up getting cut out because there were things that were going in different directions. And I think uh -huh. this is an interesting thing about discrimination in these markets, right? So mm -hmm. um, what like what does statistical discrimination look like? Well, um, you're doing a couple of things here, right? So you it may be that people have beliefs, but you're also changing the salience of information yeah. And even to the extent that they have beliefs, we don't know if the beliefs are accurate or inaccurate. Yeah. And so there's there's a lot to unpack. So we basically we looked at a few we looked at this a few different ways. We looked at guests who had, um, uh, or sorry, we looked at hosts who had lots of experience and not, and hosts with experience and hosts with multiple properties. Yeah. We're still discriminating. So kind of one thing you might think is that are they getting driven out of the market? But we didn't see that. Um, we saw that hosts, uh, so we actually saw discrimination occurred among hosts who are white and other hosts. So we saw kind of multiple sets of hosts that were discriminating. Um, the one, so then what, what one other thing we did is try to figure out what does this look like in the broader marketplace? So we looked at the prior guests and that we did code up based on pictures as a proxy of guests of previous reviews because people are reviewing the place where they stay. And what we saw is that discrimination was uh, was reduced was greatly reduced among people who had had at least one African American guest uh, in the past stay with them. Then, mm. kind of putting all this together, it, it's a complicated issue that at least kind of for us didn't sort of cleanly uh, plug into statistical or like we couldn't kind of say definitively, you know, this feels like statistical oh. discrimination or this feels like. Right. Now, I will say kind of some of the newer work that has looked at relationship with number of reviews has sort of fit to things like a model of statistical discrimination. Right. So where learning can help to reduce the bias. Right, 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 now, right. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. I, was, I guess I was just thinking at a simple level, like taste-based discrimination seems and really is not related to information. So information doesn't really like have an effect. It's at least statistical discrimination 
is all about missing information and then filling it in with some average. So, you know, you're, it does seem like if you can move the needle with information, you're finding, well, you're fine. Well, first of all, that if it is statistical discrimination, it's, it's more endogenous because there are policies that can address that, which are give, give information. Huh? What was, what were their responses to that? I'm sure they knew about the papers. Yeah, so they knew about the paper. Um, actually, somebody from Airbnb came, flew out to Boston after we did the audit study to chat about potential paths forward, like what were the things that they might do? Um, what are the ways that you might mitigate this? And so it's a good, like, uh, we, so we put down uh, some of our own proposals. And I'd say kind of the, so Ben had one, like, so we had kind of different perspectives on what, like, the optimal uh, you and Ben I, did. You and Ben, yeah, so ben and you yeah, and Ben and, weren't just like one mind. Y'all had your own kind of opinions a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, so like we, I think on running the experiment, like we, like we sort of all like Ben and there was Dan Spursky, who was a doctoral student at the time. Actually, now works at Uber, so he's kind of gone and works on some of these issues. But um, the at the time, I remember we were thinking about what should you as a platform do. So we all kind of brainstormed about. Uh, different types of solutions. And um, I'll just kind of give my own sort of perspective on this. So um, so I, I started to think like if you're in Airbnb of the world, like there's a lot of design choices that you could make, right? So you could start to think about um, how you could redesign the platform uh, in a way that's going to lead to less bias. Like here's a, you could imagine kind of that one corner solution is just get rid of pictures and names all together. Mm-hmm. And then this problem sort of goes away. And then build out the other parts of the reputation system. And that's going to make it much harder for people to discriminate because you're basically making it look a lot more like uh, Expedia or other plat- price line, other platforms that where kind of you just make the booking and there's no ability to reject. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is so cool. I mean, so have you made a career? This has been your career of, of have you just sort of gone all in on I'm really going to become an expert on the economics of maybe you call maybe it's not quite digitization, but it's like the economics of these, this, these growing tech firms like that. Cause I definitely see that over and over in your Vita. I was just wondering what's in your, what's in your head and your ambitions. Yeah. So the thing that excites me is the idea of doing research where I could draw on economics, like think about like what does theory say and help to contribute hopefully to back to some of the theory to figure out what is going on here, where our models fit, where do we where do we potentially need more models? Yeah. So I'm interested in so I'm interested in research on this area and I am drawn to areas where the research could have an impact on practice, like where the question is one where I think that you could you can help to shed light on ways where a business leader or policy leader could pick it up and start to like think about like, well, what should we do differently now? And and I will say kind of in these settings, like I think that that there is room for economists to think about, like here's something that wasn't on their mind. So on that project, discrimination wasn't on Airbnb's mind at all. And Mm -hmm. once we wrote this paper in service to them, they came to Boston, we uh, had dinner to talk about it. Like they went back and kind of, thought about it we thought about it we put together an hbr article to figure out like what are the levers we think they could pull can they reduce information can they nudge people to do instant booking can they have greater penalties for discrimination and sort of weighing these different types of design choices through a economic design lens but thinking more broadly about like what are the different disciplines say about how you might shape behavior and and reduce bias there. And then ultimately Airbnb did make a, they put together a task force and incorporated a bunch of changes, including a lot of the things that have been on our agenda. And um, now it's a, you can see lots of kind of concrete changes they've made. So they used to have, uh, they used to have pictures of hosts listed on the main search page. Now they don't, now you have to go kind of click through to see the picture of the host. You used to see the picture of the guest before you decide whether to reject them. Now you don't, you only see yeah. the picture afterwards. So I think that we're kind of mid process on that one, right. but then zooming out from that project to more generally, yeah, I'm interested in 
fit. I think that economics has a lot that I could offer to think about these questions and especially questions that aren't already being kind of answered or answered the way that you would think to approach it in a business setting or a policy setting. I mean, you know, with thinking about like Michael Schwartz was at Harvard and then he left, go to, you know, and then Chris Nosco, I just interviewed him. He was at Booth and then he left for Amazon, you know, uh, Steve Tadalas didn't leave. He like did some other thing where he goes and then comes back. And Susan obviously came back, but, but like you're, I haven't spoken to someone yet who's so in the weeds of tech, you know, active, creative work, anal, you know, analyzing them and that it hasn't left, you know? And so I'm curious, like what, what, what's keeping you from leaving? What, 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 what would it take to make you leave? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think uh, I think there's just so much that goes into somebody's decision, right? About kind of what's the right fit for them, or where's the area where they could uh, where where they could have the impact that they want to have, right? So, and I definitely love working um, on kind of questions that will have a direct impact, and love kind of talking with people in business about how to sort of go from research to impact. I also think that for me, like there's things that excite me about staying in the classroom and about kind of staying with the research that I had on. So this Airbnb project, like it's hard to imagine that would have happened if I had done it from within Airbnb. You almost had to do it. Why is that? It. How come it, how come you couldn't have done it from within? You know, I, I think at least kind of where their head was at the time, I don't know that there was internal appetite for thinking about you know, discrimination on the platform and what you do to fix it. But I, I think now, once the research is out there and we've sort of laid out like what does the path look like, I think there's a lot more appetite even from with what from within Airbnb, where I know that there are people that are actively working on this and have been able to then be kind of a helpful outsider who chats about different options and different roads to go down. Right. Um, so th that I think is a piece of it. Uh, for me, for example, the case, like I wrote a new case study now on Airbnb that puts students in the perspective of Brian Chesney, the CEO of Airbnb, after our findings came out. Now the day is going to focus around, you're a Chesky, what do you do? And mm -hmm. thinking about that is, I like the idea of thinking about it from, I guess for me, it's like I like these different perspectives. So I love thinking about it from a business perspective, but it's pretty, for me, it's exciting to bring this into the classroom. This is going to be in our required first-year curriculum, so all mm -hmm. the incoming uh, students are going to uh, see this and have to grapple with that. And for me, I like the opportunity to take these ideas and then feed them back into the classroom, too, to think, all right, you're going to be a future business person. Right. You're going to be in situations where these things come up. So to me, it's another way that we can help bring economics into the tech sector, right? So right. we've got economists doing great things by going directly into tech sector. Yeah. And then we've got people contributing to research, but also then thinking about how to bring this more into the pedagogy. Right. To get all the tools uh, to kind of to put this into practice, even if they're not an economist at all, but just kind of mm. taking these ideas and helping to, uh, to build out businesses. And for me, it's kind of businesses that, it, so uh, I guess we're in, a very small way, right? It sort of moved the needle on, like thinking a little bit more about inclusivity of platforms, right? So kind of a goal of here's an area where you might do something a little bit differently. And that's an exciting uh, thing for me as well. So mm -hmm. I, for me, I haven't kind of opened or closed any one particular door, but I, yeah. I, I, I see kind of areas of excitement in every which way. So I think there's yeah. lots of opportunities out there for economists who are interested in these yeah. areas. Yeah, but you've loved it sounds like you, you still kind of do love uh, being a professor. Is that right? Yeah, so, you, you love being, yeah. you also, it's not just being an economist. You also love being a professor. Yeah. So for me, I like being, a. there's things that, uh, that bring me a lot of joy about that. And that's kind of going back to why I was in a business job that I liked. So it's like, there's a lot that I like about, business, but there's also something that I like and that I love about kind of just, uh, I guess it's like the different directions uh, that I could take um, as an academic, like uh, it's something that, you know, not everybody loves it, but for me, that's a piece of it that feels like a, 
like a thing that fits well with my right. interests. And right, when right, I've right. talked with other people who have left academia to go into tech and are very happy to have done so. Yeah. Uh, some of what they they pointed to is that some of the things that I may like, they didn't like doing. Yeah. Um, and the other part of it is where I think that 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 people who have kind of left and gone into industry are doing something really cool is that they're having day-to-day impacts that you just can't, if you're focused mainly on research and teaching, you can't have that kind of rapid impact at scale within a company. Mm. So there are things that I, uh, like there's opportunities that I see that are amazing uh, that then I don't get to have by kind of being on the path that I'm on. Yeah, 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 yeah. So these new students that are coming out now, you know, it, it, it seems like, you know, uh, it's because I, my sense is that the, the newest crops of students every year are just much more aware that they have lots of options, uh, you know, and I'm just curious, like, you know, at, at, what is, if you could just sort of like speak out loud, because you and Susan Athey wrote an article about this. What, why, why are firms now, what is it that the that firms have learned that that they've learned that the marginal product of economists is actually high enough that the the, the demand has shifted. What what exactly? If you could just kind of summarize it, so that they could be like knowing what it is to be thinking about. Yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, maybe I'll just kind of describe the shift a little bit too. Yeah. So uh, a little bit of background, even on that article. I remember several years ago now. Uh, so Susan and I had a call with uh, someone named Tom Beers, who's the executive director of the National Association for Business Economics. Yeah. Who, they have been doing work historically, mainly on uh, like a lot of macro work, right? So kind of the areas where economists had already had a, had uh, done a lot of work. And the question that, that Tom had had was, you know, what's happening? Like I hear that there's interesting things happening in the tech sector. So we talked about some of our own experiences but then started thinking more broadly, like what, what is it that economists are bringing uh, to tech? And there's a, there's a few, there are a few things like the, the skill set. it turns out is quite useful if you're going to a tech company. So kind of causal inference is one area, right? Where uh, some of the data, there were lots of data scientists, of course, already working in tech companies, but uh, they didn't think about things like uh, causal inference or equilibrium outcomes in the same way that economists would when right. uh, when approaching a problem. They um, didn't think about the role of incentives in different outcomes in the same way that economists think about it. So I think some of the tools that have been developed over the course of decades within economics turn out to be quite useful mm. in tech. So uh, what what are the, there's too many kind of types of jobs and types of paths to go through them all now, but the growth path is basically, at that time, I remember um, it was, again, you and I were talking about this a little bit before, if there was, Amazon was hiring some economists, Google had hired a few economists, but there wasn't this kind of scale of growth within the industry. Um, and over time, uh, people were being brought in for a lot of applied IO type questions mm-hmm. and then some causal inference questions. And now they're going to areas as, as separate as kind of going into an HR group, mm. you know, bringing in uh, organizational type economics and labor economics insight into it to um, think about kind of causal impact of advertising effectiveness. Right. So these are kind of the swath of problems that economists have come into work on. So right. the, the skill set is set for lots of areas of tech. So now why in general, you could ask, like, are there more jobs that are data intensive, right? So there's been this reduction in cost of data, um, increased availability of data, that ease of experimentation that had been there some decades ago. So I think that the feasibility of doing these things on the empirical front has increased a lot too. Mm-hmm. Um, so now for people who are going on the market, what does that look like? There's you know, you're still kind of the AA route where there's lots of tech companies that are hiring through there. Uh, Nave has also put together a little job market that's held at the tech economics conference every yeah. year. Um, and there there's other uh, tech companies that get hired. So, so actually, um, so Susan and I had had a role in helping to, 
think about how to create and scale this annual conference. So one of the things we said is let's kind of figure out what kind of uh, interest there is in this, and we could put this together and see now what areas there are. So it talks about areas like market design, behavioral economics, um, machine learning, causal inference, industrial organization. So trying to take different swaths of the economics toolkit and help to create venues for people to translate what's happening in research into practice and for people in research to see what's happening um, in practice. So that's kind of the goal of what the NAVE Tech Conference is. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I mean, that seems like that's become, uh, I was, I was telling a student, you know, from what I had heard that, that the NABE, the NAB conference is, if you're wanting to get into tech, just going there on a more, you know, maybe even on a regular basis, because they're doing, are you also presenting papers when you go there? Yeah. So there's paper presentation. So it's a combination. So I'd say about my, my guess, this is an approximation, it's probably half academics and half practitioners that are presenting and it's a combination of formats so some panels some paper presentations mm. and some smaller breakout groups that have kind of casual discussions about things or right. kind of meet the recruiter so right. i'd say it's a fun way to see kind of sets of papers around around tech and um, now you can do that in other places too because there's other tech related things i guess the you the probably the more novel part is kind of this connection between research and practice, like this heavy mm. back and forth of what are some of the business uh, problems people are thinking about and panels on how do you have a career in the tech sector and what are the different career trajectories look like? Yeah. 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 Awesome. Well, my, it's top of the, it's, it's, it's sort of top of the hour, a little bit past it. Um, before we go, I was just kind of curious, you know, now that you've been, you know, an economist for a while, I was wondering, you know, not necessarily what is your favorite paper or favorite book in economics, but what's a, what's something that you have found has just hung around it? What's an article that has hung around in your mind? You've noticed you, you just, you reference it more, you know, surprisingly a lot. So like I, I think about Michael Spence's job market signaling paper, you know, way more than I would have thought. Um, I think about it. It just seems like it's become just, you know, a change the way I think about a lot of things. Is there anything, any paper over the years that has just stuck with you like that? Yeah. So a lot, <laughs> actually. So that's a tough, that's a tough question. Um, like I would say, a few come to mind as things that just kind of are always on my mind and I reference back to a lot. Actually, you just named one of them, which is just yeah. such a great paper that I think about in so many different settings. Um, some of the some of the more recent stuff that I find I just think about a lot. So nudge, kind of so yeah. the whole like the especially kind of the opening of it, but the basic idea of the book is one that I just kind of come back to in different ways. Because when I look mm -hmm. at platforms, it's hard for me not to see kind of the platform as two things, the platform as a choice architect, the platform as a market designer. And if you think about those two literatures and like the, some of the papers that started with it, then that's really guided the way that I think about the, like for me, the big influence they've had is to get me to think more proactively about uh, how a platform should be designed rather than just kind of taking taking ourselves, uh, taking the design of the market as given. So right. I, I would say that those are ones that have really, um, really stuck with me. Another one uh, in the tech sector that like as, as excited. So I like some of these papers that have shown areas where you can really have a big impact on, um, on a decision that people are making in an organization like the, uh, the Blake Nosco to Dallas, like, so yeah. the eBay ads. So this, uh, a paper that is interesting to me, uh, both the result is very interesting, right? But then what it is interesting to me is also the fact that a company was making this, a large company that was running lots of experiments that had lots of data was still making this mistake. Right. So then when you think kind of how does the economics toolkit, and it doesn't have to be the economics toolkit, but kind of call it what you will, like the yeah. causal inference toolkit, and that one happened to be brought in by economists. Right. How can that help? Uh, companies to think a little bit more clearly they yeah. came in and sort of quickly surfaced and like kind of, kind of uh, fairly straightforward experiment yeah. that gave them a lot of insight into mistake they were making and how they could improve on it yeah yeah 
Yeah, that's that's a great that's a great experiment and a great story and the the whole thing of it. I, I I've uh, uh, interviewed both Chris and and Steve and um, hopefully I can interview Thomas at some point. But yeah, it's a that's a that's a phenomenal paper and really deep. A lot of like it leaves you with a lot of thoughts, a lot of thoughts. Well, thanks so much for for giving me your time. I really appreciate us having a chance to talk and to just learn a little bit more about your life and your your thoughts and things. Great. It was great to chat with you. Okay. Gotta see us through. Honey, you need me. Baby, I need